God bless and greetings in the name of Jesus Christ. We're again in the book on God's behalf. Let's take our Bibles and go to Job chapter 34, verse 35. Job 34, verse 35. Job has spoken, and these are Elihu's words, without knowledge, and his words were without wisdom. What Job both said of himself as being righteous and what he said of God as denying him justice, both were notably in error. It is also common among men that when they speak of God, the words they utter and the ideas they infer are rarely inspired of the Lord. Yet a lack of any true wisdom and knowledge of the Lord does not stop most from speaking about a God they know little of. Much confusion also would leave the church if those not inspired by the Holy Spirit would hold their peace until they possessed true spiritual enlightenment. Observe as well that all thoughts, like all spirits, must be tried, and only God's Holy Spirit can do this. If men then are quick to speak, they will very quickly find themselves ashamed. A fool utters all his mind, so also if a man does not carefully mind his tongue, especially in the area of religion, then this proves his religion vain. James 1.21 If any man among you, now listen to this, if any man among you seem to be religious and bridleth not his tongue, but deceiveth his own heart, this man's religion is what? Vain. Barnes on this verse. If any man among you seem to be religious, pious, or devout, that is, if he does not restrain his tongue, his other evidences of religion are worthless. A man may undoubtedly have many things in his character which seem to be evidences of the existence of religion in his heart, and yet there may be some one thing that shall show all these evidences are false. Religion is designed to produce an effect on our whole conduct. And if there is any one thing in reference to which it does not bring us under its control, that one thing may show that all other appearances of piety are worthless. And bridleth not his tongue, restrains or curbs it not. As a horse is restrained with a bridle, there may have been some reason why the apostle referred to this particular sin, which is now unknown to us. Or he may perhaps have intended to select this as a specimen to illustrate this idea, that if there is any one evil propensity which religion does not control, or if there is any one thing in respect to which its influence is not felt, whatever other evidences of piety there may be, this will demonstrate that all those appearances of religion are vain. For religion is designed to bring the whole man under control and to subdue every faculty of the body and mind to its demands. If the tongue is not restrained or if there is any unsubdued propensity to sin whatever, it proves that there is no true religion, end quote. How important is the tongue? whether it speaks of improper things of God or worse yet, good things about itself. Nowhere also is self-righteousness more evident than when men like to hear the sound of their own voice. 
In Christ's parable of the Pharisee and the publican, the Pharisee prayed with himself, using his speech, not for the worship and praise of God, but for his own self-righteous exaltation. This is what Job's three friends had done, and Job's sin was not much different. Yet, an unbridled, an unspiritually led tongue, as far as God is concerned, is ample evidence for vain religion. That when men are not led by the Holy Spirit when speaking, and there is no true spirituality in their words, then their religion is vain. It was not a small sin that Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar committed by speaking of the Lord's ways when in fact they knew little of nothing of God's person. Not a small misstep when Job, in trying to protect his own righteousness, inferred unrighteousness on God's part. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. And just as a man's heart and actions will determine his future destiny, surprising to most, so also will his tongue. There are not only temporal but spiritual consequences to what men speak, and none shall be able to escape what they thought was long forgotten in the past, God's remembrance of their very own words. And in Matthew 12, uh, verse 36, But I say unto you that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give an account thereof in the day of judgment. For by thy words thou shalt be justified, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned. The Jameson Fawcett Brown Bible on this, But I say unto you that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give an account thereof in the day of judgment. They might say it was nothing, or the men, we meant no evil. We merely threw out a supposition as one way of accounting for the miracle we witnessed. If it will not stand, let it go. Why make so much of it and bear down with such severity for it? Jesus replies, it was not nothing. And at the great day will not be treated as nothing. Words as the index of the heart, however idle they may seem, will be taken into account of, whether good or bad, in estimating character in the day of judgment, end quote. Just because words are idle, careless, lazy, and or malicious, does not mean that they are not injurious and will be forgotten. In Job's case, Elihu proclaims injury to God, so that by Job in trying to protect himself, his words ultimately brought reproach upon God. If we are not led by the Holy Spirit in our speech and utter things untrue of the Lord, then we will remove an accurate knowledge of the Lord himself. Deuteronomy 4.2 You shall not add unto the word which I command you, neither shall you diminish aught you from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I command you. And also in Revelation 22.18 for I testify unto every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book. If any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in the book. And if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things which are written in the book. Nothing is more important to keep in its original and unadulterated form than the spoken word, either written or inspired through the power of the Holy Spirit. For by it are men saved, and by it is God made known. 
Job, therefore, was worthy of being corrected for his words, since both life and death lay in the power of the tongue. Observe as well that only right and good speech will produce for a man or woman a path to a blessed and good life. 1 Peter 3.10 For he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that they speak no guile. Benson on this verse. He that will love life, that would make life amiable and desirable and see good days, namely such that are prosperous and happy. Let him refrain his tongue from evil, from railing, backbiting, tail-bearing, from all rash and provoking expressions, and his lips that they speak no guile, no deceit, nothing contrary to sincerity and simplicity, end quote. If a man then hopes to see good days, as Job undoubtedly hoped to again reclaim, then the tongue must be refrained from evil, and especially that which infers the Lord has committed it. For none shall live a quiet and blessed life whose tongue is improperly used for anything other than the worship and praise of God, as well as the instruction and encouragement of others. So important then is the use of the tongue that it influences the whole welfare and well-being of men. And now in verse 36 of Job 34. My desire, again, Elihu speaking, my desire is that Job may be tried unto the end because of his answers for wicked men. Elihu's desire was that Job would be tried because he inadvertently gave ammunition to wicked men. There was sin that needed to be addressed, and Elihu desired the sufficient time was given so that Job's words might be fully brought to light. The irony is that Job had sought an audience with God, and he would be given it, but not for the purpose of self-defense, rather that he might be illuminated to his own ignorance. Yes, Job's prayer would be answered, just not the way he envisioned. This teaches us that even with those who fear the Lord, as Job surely did, if they speak improperly, they shall have to give account for their words. So that if we are not strengthening God's arguments against man with our spirit-led speech, then we are always assisting men's arguments against God. We should never also aid the enemies of God by speaking without knowledge. So that if God's enemies foolishly think that they have arguments against the Lord, let us determine not to make them stronger by the use of frivolous and uninspired words. Verse 37 now. For he addeth rebellion unto his sin. He clappeth his hands among us and multiplieth his words against God. Though Job had successfully defended himself against his three friends' false accusations, it should not have caused within him thoughts of any true victory. Benson on this verse. He addeth rebellion unto his sin. He sinned before by impatience and under affliction. But now he has grown obstinate, and instead of humbling himself for his sins, he justifies himself and accuses the blessed God. He clappeth his hands among us in token of victory, insulting and triumphing, and multiplieth his words against God. It is important to remember that whatever knowledge we may have of the Lord, we should not boast in, 
and especially so when this knowledge remains insufficient to release us from our own captivity. Job had rejoiced that his arguments had superseded his friends, but in truth, it did nothing to help himself in his own cause. Winning any debate, especially with fools, does not guarantee release for ourselves. Yet far too often, self-righteousness assumes victory when in fact nothing of real importance has been won. Hence, though self-righteousness may praise itself in thinking it possesses superior wisdom, what good is any verbal victory without spiritual freedom? And even though Job could refute his friends, he could not refute his God or the one sent by him. Human wisdom surely will also not accomplish in deliverance what the real truth of God shall. And in John chapter 8, verse 32, we read, And ye shall know the truth, and the truth alone, or the truth, shall make you free. Like with Christ calling Lazarus out from the dead, truth is able to summon a man bound in darkness to enter the life of the living. Ellicott on John 8, 32. The light of truth dispels the darkness in which lies the stronghold of evil. Sin is the bondage of the powers of the soul, and this bondage is willed because the soul does not see its fearful evil. When it perceives the truth, there comes to it a power which rouses it from its stupor and strengthens it to break the fetters by which it has been bound, end quote. Whenever men view themselves as innocent and tragic events happen in their lives, then God will often be assumed guilty. He then who cannot see his own sin will often attribute sin to the Lord. So that if men genuinely think themselves pure, then there is no other moral position to take other than somehow God has sinned against them. Consequently, he who will not condemn himself must condemn his God. In doing so, rebellion is added to his sin. Sin also has such an effect on men's inward character that it distorts even their minds. Job chapter 35, verse 1 now. Elihu spake, moreover, and said, Thinkest thou this to be right, that thou saidest, My righteousness is more than God's. Here is Job's great sin, and it's a doozy. Thinkest thou this to be right, that thou saidest, My righteousness is more than God's? Job had not directly said this, but his complaints against the Lord inferred this is exactly what a portion of his heart believed. What greater sin also is there committed against God than for men to be deceived that they are more righteous than their maker? The pride and conceit of man, prompting him to believe himself as more righteous than his God. Thus sinners will, without divine correction for their pride, believe their own righteousness as superior to God's. In the Garden of Eden, the devil's lie was that if Adam and Eve ate of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, then they would become gods themselves. This self-exaltation has continued in their descendants. For only he who questions God thinks himself superior to God. And if men believe that they are already on the same level or the same discerning level as the Lord in knowledge, then it is but a small step to both think and believe their righteousness as either equal or superior to the Lord's. By questioning God's ways and doubting God's sovereignty in his life, Job had inferred, though he said it not directly, that God was unjust and himself righteous. 
How common is this sin, whereby in questioning God's plan for their life, men reveal their true colors of foolishly believing that they could rule things better than the Lord. Verse 3 now of chapter 35. For thou saidst, what advantage will it be unto thee? And what profit shall I have if I be cleansed from my sin? In giving evidence as to why Job thought his righteousness as more than the Lord's, Elihu addresses the point that Job had stated that there appeared to be ultimately no profit in living a godly life. Because Job had suffered loss, it caused him to question the pursuit of godliness. Hence, if seeking to be cleansed from sin did not yield divine protection, then why should he seek to be cleansed from sin at all? But by challenging God's government, Job had challenged the righteousness of he who had instituted his government. Job, in short, was disgruntled in the way he thought that God had governed his affairs. By allowing the tragic events in Job's life, But what Job did not know was that no sin can be properly confessed or atoned for until it is known. Thus, where there is ignorance of sin, there cannot be full and complete repentance, which alone will produce forgiveness. It is also a very foolish thing to judge anything as being right or wrong simply by whether or not it is profitable to us. Observe as well that many have been called by the Lord to suffer for His sake and surely not to have a more blessed physical existence. Moses was called to suffer affliction with the people of God in Hebrews 11.25. The Apostle Paul also was called by the Lord Jesus to suffer for His name in Acts 9.15 and 16. Men, therefore, should never judge any call of God as having to produce as the main ingredient personal advantage to self simply because most heavenly calls will entail with them a large degree of human suffering, though at the end of them there is promise of eternal blessing. Verse 4 now. I will answer thee, and thy companions with thee. Look unto the heavens and see, and behold the clouds which are higher than thou. If thou sinnest, what dost thou against him? Or if thy transgressions be multiplied, What doest thou unto him? If thou be righteous, what givest thou him? Or what receiveth he of thine hand? Thy wickedness may hurt a man as thou art, and thy righteousness may profit the son of man. The pulpit commentary on this verse. If thou be righteous, what givest thou him? By parity of reason, as our sins do not injure God, so our righteousness cannot benefit him. As David says, my goodness extendeth not to thee, Psalm 16, 2. Or what receiveth he of thine hand? All things being already God's, we can but give him of his own. We cannot really add to his possessions or to his glory or to his felicity, end quote. It is also common among men to assume more of themselves for pursuing righteousness than they should. Where they foolishly assume A few righteous acts are to be reckoned as worthy of a parade in heaven. Job had vastly overestimated what his fear of God should yield him by thinking that his pursuit of a righteous life was somehow a special gift to God. Yet as Elihu reveals, even the pursuit of righteousness by itself gives nothing to the Lord. So though a man may seek to walk in righteousness, 
He should not assume this is uniquely special or something that will guarantee protection from the trials of this life. Barnes on 35.8, Thy wickedness may hurt a man as thou art. That is, it may injure him, but not God. He is too far exalted above man and too independent of man in his sources of happiness to be affected by what he can do. The object of the whole passage is to show that God is independent of people and is not governed in his dealings with them on the principles which regulate their conduct with each other. One man may be greatly benefited by the conduct of another and may feel under obligation to reward him for it. Or he may be greatly injured in his person, property, or reputation by another and will endeavor to avenge himself. But nothing of this kind can happen to God. If he rewards, therefore, it must be of his grace and mercy, not because he is laid under obligation. If he inflicts chastisement, it must be because people deserve it and not because God has been injured. In this reasoning, Elihu undoubtedly refers to Job, whom he regards as having urged a claim to be a different kind of treatment because he supposed that he deserved it. The general principle of Elihu is clearly correct, that God is entirely independent of human beings, that neither our good nor evil conduct can affect his happiness, and that consequently his dealings with us are those of impartial justice, end quote. The distance that God is from the earth lends to his impartial judgments upon it. The Lord's independence from man ultimately is that which ensures that fair and just rulings will be made regarding man. Because then God is removed from the earth, his mind remains clear to judge all things fairly. Verse 9 now. By reason of the multitude of oppressions, they make the oppressed a cry, They cry out by reason of the arm of the mighty. But none saith, where is God my maker, who giveth songs in the night? This is, at first glance, a difficult verse to understand. The Cambridge Bible helps with its interpretation. The Cambridge Bible now, having laid down this principle, Elihu now proceeds to clear away some anomalies, which seem to support Job's contention. There are instances where godliness does not seem to be an advantage to men, where oppressed innocence cries in vain for redress. The reason is that the cry is merely the natural voice of suffering. It is no true devout appeal to heaven. None saith, where is God my maker, end quote. It is neither uncommon nor is it right that when men experience the difficulties of religion, as Job did, that they question its validity. Yet to examine faith only on the human level leaves out the entire spiritual realm. Any proper religion also should not be so concerned with earthly existence that it forgets the ultimate purpose of this life, which is to lead men into the heavenly presence of God. Paul said that we must undergo much tribulation to enter the kingdom. Informing Christians that the road to heaven will not be an easy one. To expect otherwise is to imagine a faith separate from the one God is calling us to. And in Acts 14, 22, confirming the souls of the disciples and exhorting them to continue in the faith and that we must, through much tribulation, 
enter into the kingdom of God. Barnes on this verse. And that we must, that it is fit or proper that we should, not that it is fixed by any fatal necessity, but that we are not to expect that it will be otherwise. We are to calculate on it when we become Christians. Why it is proper or fit, the apostle did not state. But we may remark that it is proper, one, because such is the opposition of the world to pure religion that it cannot be avoided. Of this, they had had striking demonstration in Lystra and Iconium. Two, it is necessary to reclaim us from wandering and to keep us in the path of duty. Three, it is necessary to wean us from the world, to keep before our minds the great truth that we have here, no continuing city and no abiding place. Trial here makes us pant for a world of rest. The opposition of sinners makes us desire that world where the wicked shall cease from troubling and where there shall be eternal friendship and peace. For when we are persecuted and afflicted, we may remember that it has been the lot of the Christians from the beginning. We tread a path that has been watered by the tears of the saints and rendered sacred by the shedding of the best blood on the earth. The Savior trod that path, and it is enough that the disciple be as his master and the servant as his Lord. It is impossible to follow the Lord Jesus and think that opposition to his Holy Spirit can be avoided. This world is against Christ and would just as easily crucify him today as it did some 2,000 years ago. Undergoing both trials and tribulation also has many long-lasting spiritual benefits, which cannot be learned without going through them. This life will be hard, but because of its hardness, it can prompt us to even further lean on the Lord and depend on His strength. And then in Hebrews eleven thirty four, we read, Quench the violence of fire, escape the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong. Wax valiant in flight, turn to flight the armies of the aliens. It is thus in our weakness that God's power is seen, and our utter dependence on Him that His great strength is made known. Verse 11 now of chapter 35. Who teaches us more than the beasts of the earth, and maketh us wiser than the fowls of heaven? Beasts know not the reason of their affliction, nor why they are led to slaughter. Yet this is not so with man. For men have been taught by God and of God. And as such, when in trial, they possess enough intelligence to cry out to heaven. Having access to his creator gives man a distinct advantage over all other worldly creatures. Yet if men reject this higher wisdom and choose to abandon both God's instruction and God's correction, then they will digress to being exactly like the brutes around them. Consequently, if men do not seek God in their trials, they reveal themselves equally as deficient in wisdom as the creatures God initially made them superior to. Job chapter 35, verse 12 now. There they cry, but none giveth answer because of the pride of evil men. Benson on this verse. There they cry, or then, as the Hebrew... Uh, particle here used often means. That is, in that time or condition of trouble, but none giveth answer. The reason that God doth not deliver them 
is because though they lie crying under their afflictions, they continue to be evil, wicked, and impotent, proud and unhumbled for those sins, on account of which God brought these miseries upon them, end quote. Here we have an answer as to why when many sinners cry, there is no answer. It is simply because pride still maintains control of them. The pride in a man's heart ultimately determining whether God hears his prayers or not. Hence, those who hold high opinions of themselves, Elihu reveals, will not be heard by God. The nature of pride also is that it will complain both of God and to God, but will refuse to humble itself before God. And it's for this reason that though many cry, still they refuse to humble themselves before their maker. Consequently, until pride is removed from the heart, then it is a foolish thing to assume that any desperate prayer will be answered. God resisteth the proud, and surely the Lord will answer none who in adversity continue to refuse the path of humility. Verse 13 now. Surely God will not hear vanity, neither will the Almighty regard it. How piercing is this revelation that in regards to prayer or the search for divine assistance in any manner, God will not hear vanity, nor will He respond to the speech of those who lack a truly humble spirit. Ultimately then, vain men and those who refuse humbling themselves to the Lord will not be heard by the Lord. The Jameson Fawcett Bible on this, excuse me, the Jameson Fawcett Brown Bible on this, vanity, that is, cries uttered in an unhumbled spirit, which applies to some degree to Job's cries, still more to those of the wicked, end quote. See, though Job held a fear of God, his lack of a broken and contrite spirit kept his earthly petitions from being heard. There is a reason, therefore, why many prayers remain unanswered, and it lies in the existence of pride in the men who pray them. Surely God will not hear vanity, neither will the Almighty regard it. Pool on this verse. Vain and light persons that have no true wisdom or solid piety in them, but are wholly addicted to vain and worldly things, rejoicing immoderately when they have them and crying out for want of them, as here they do, or vain cries, which proceed not from faith or from piety, but only from self-love and a natural sense of their misery, which is common to them with brute beasts. The abstract is here put for the concrete, as wickedness is often put for wicked men and pride for proud persons and the like. Neither will the Almighty regard it, though God be able to help them, as this title of God implies, and though He be the judge of the world, as the former name of God signifies, to whom therefore it belongs to right the oppressed against the oppressor, yet in this case He justly refuses to help them. End quote. If a man's heart is not right, and is controlled by vanity and vain things, then God will neither hear his prayer nor come to his aid when divine help is needed. It is worth considering as well that those proud of heart generally know nothing at all regarding the humble spirit needed to obtain mercy from the Lord in time of need. Because they know not the Lord, they also know not that he will never hear 
nor respond to those full of themselves. The condition of a man's heart, therefore, will greatly affect if his prayers are divinely responded to or not. And in James 4.10, Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and He shall lift you up. To be lifted up from any captivity, a humble spirit, both to God and God's will for your life, is essential for any true hope of deliverance. Verse 14 now. Although thou sayest, thou shalt not see him, yet judgment is before him. Therefore trust thou in him. Benson on this verse. Here Elihu answers another objection of Job's and tells him that though God may for a season delay to answer, yet he will certainly do him right. Yet judgment is before him. Justice is at his tribunal in all his ways and administrations. Therefore trust thou in him Instead of murmuring, repent of what is past. Humble thyself under God's hand. Wait patiently in his way till deliverance come. For it will certainly come if thou dost not hinder it. End quote. Barnes on this same verse. Elihu here says that though it is true in fact that God is invisible, yet this ought not to be regarded as a reason why he should not confide in him. The argument of Elihu here which is undoubtedly sound, is that the fact that God is invisible should not be regarded as any evidence that He does not attend to the affairs of His people or that He is not worthy of our love, end quote. Though God remains invisible, still He should be trusted. Though Job could not see God overseeing his life, this did not mean that justice would not prevail. It is good then to place our trust in an invisible God who though he is not seen to us by the human eye, still retains the power to execute proper justice and judgment in the earth. Consider as well that there are so many spiritual problems that can be overcome simply by trusting in the Lord. So much peace in the heart that can be gained by trusting in God's plan of predestination and protection for our lives. He also, who will keep his soul trusting in the Lord, will save his heart from much spiritual confusion. Verse 35 now. But now, because it is so, he hath visited in his anger, yet, yet, yet he knoweth it not in great extremity. Benson on this verse. But now, because it is not so, that is because Job doth not acknowledge God's justice in his own sins and wait upon God in a proper way for mercy, he hath visited in his anger. God hath laid grievous afflictions upon him, all which appear to be too little to bring Job to compliance with God's will. Yet he knoweth it not. Job is not sufficiently sensible of it, so as to be humbled under God's mighty hand, in great extremity, or though in great extremity, namely of afflictions. Though Job hath hitherto been, and still is, exercised with sore calamities, yet they have not brought him to the knowledge of God and himself. Therefore doth Job open his mouth in vain. Hence it is manifest that he pours forth his complaints without any success and gets no relief by them. He multiplieth words without knowledge, therefore discovering his ignorance of God and of himself. There are often sins in men that they are completely unaware of, 
like with David's sin against both Uriah and Bathsheba that prompted the anger of God. Job's sin was committed in ignorance, as many sins are, but this did not mitigate God's feelings towards it. Teaching us that though self-righteousness and human pride is generally undetected by those who possess it, this will not prohibit God from yielding to men as they have sown. Ignorance of the law is no excuse, and neither is ignorance of personal sin sufficient reason that we should not have to bear its consequences. Hence, just because a man or woman does not know their sin does not mean that they shall not have to suffer the consequences for it. For this reason, both God's will and God's word should be sought so that we do not inadvertently sin against him. Psalm 119.11 Thy word have I hid in mine heart that I might not sin against thee. By hiding God's word and God's revelations in our hearts and seeking to obey them actually becomes one of the best ways to avoid sinning against God. By then keeping God's word in our hearts, sin can be avoided and righteousness pursued. Meditating on the word of God and believing in it therefore ultimately will prove to be a very practical way of moving away from the sin in ourselves. Now verse 16. Therefore doth Job open his mouth in vain. He multiplieth words without knowledge. Barnes on this verse. Therefore, in view of all that Elihu had now said, he came to the conclusion that the views of Job were erroneous and that he had no just cause of complaint. He had suffered no more than that he had deserved. He might have obtained a release or mitigation if he had applied to God and the government of God was just and every way of worthy of confidence. The remark of Job, therefore, complaining of the severity of his sufferings and of the government of God were not based on knowledge and had, in fact, no solid foundation, end quote. Job had spoken much, Yet in the end, he proved that he knew very little of the Lord or even his own lifted up heart. An abundance of words, therefore, does not mean an extension of wisdom. Hence, though Job had multiplied his words, this did not mean that an equal amount of wisdom followed them. Ecclesiastes 5.2 Be not rash with thy mouth, and let not thine heart be hasty to utter anything before God. For God is in heaven, and thou upon the earth. Therefore, let thy words be few. And Benson, to close it out here on Ecclesiastes 5.2, Do not give way to every sudden motion of the heart, nor suffer it to break out of thy lips till thou hast well weighed it. We must think and think twice before we speak. When we are to speak, either from God in preaching or to God in prayer or in solemn vows and promises made in his presence. End quote. Amen.